Let me show you Africa as an entrepreneur. Africa is a fundamental part of the global economy. There are people building businesses in Africa, continental businesses that are huge businesses. So it's a vibrant, young market with lots of energy, talent, and skills. What can I do? What role can I play? What is my purpose? When we put our faith and our trust in God, He's the master strategist and always directs our path. God went after the very thing that could become a mammon stronghold in my life. He said He wants that. And every time it gets too difficult, I basically say, you are the one, this is your business, God. You will get the glory. Uh, there's a way the world does business and there's a way we do business. So come, come see that Africa. The size of our continent, along with our diverse cultures, provide us with rich insights into God and His creativity. We are excited to highlight the many influential voices of innovators and entrepreneurs across Africa. We will also feature some entrepreneurs from around the world who we think have important things to say, no matter where we call home. These are the stories of how businesses flourish and how his call to create continues to this day. Come for the content. Stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Entrepreneur. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Africa podcast. We are committed to spotlighting the voices of entrepreneurs and innovators shaping the marketplace across the continent. This week, we are featuring Phil Cunningham. Phil is a leader in Africa's entertainment industry, but he didn't start out that way. He grew up in a rural area of Zimbabwe and started a small agricultural business to make money as a young man. He didn't see his first film until he was 14, but when he did, it changed his life. He immediately recognized its power and looked for ways to tell great stories. In the late 90s, he wrote and produced Africa's first length animation film. Today, he runs Sunrise Productions, the studio behind the massively successful YouTube series and Netflix film Jungle Beat. He has bigger aspirations with his next project, though, a beautifully animated rendition of the story of David. He joins the show to talk about storytelling and why he thinks Christians shouldn't be intimidated by the giants of their industries. Welcome back to Faith Driven Entrepreneur Africa. I'm here as always with Ndidi. Ndidi, good morning. Good, good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Great to be here, Henry. So I'm all kinds of fired up. I'm a parent. You're a parent. We've got kids. We know the impact of culture on them. We know the impact of storytelling, of animation, of being able to just communicate real truths from the Bible. And we have a great African story today from somebody who has done that with excellence and at scale. And Phil Cunningham is with us on the program in the virtual studio, if you will. Phil, welcome. Henry, thank you so much. Thanks for the invites. It's, it's so special to be part of this podcast. Thank you. So there's so much that we want to talk to you about today, and we're starting off on kind of like a trivial note, and it's maybe even a little bit of a distraction from the larger story, which we're going to get into, of course, but I was intrigued by just one detail of your story that's fascinating, and that is that a guy that has put so much excellence and contributions to the world of film didn't watch a movie until he's 14, and it echoes a story that we told on this program for the FDE Global podcast with a guy named Dallas Jenkins, who did the Chosen series. And he wasn't allowed to watch movies until he was 13. So you were 14, he was 13. And he surprised us all when he told us the name of the movie that he finally got to see when he was 13, because his dad was a filmmaker, having done the Left Behind series. I don't know if you're familiar with that. But his dad says, can't watch any movies until you're 13. I thought, wow, what's that first movie going to be? I thought it would be Christian. I thought it would be, you know, Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments or something like that. And interestingly, the first movie that Dallas Jenkins watched when he was 13 years old was The Godfather. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty <laughs> interesting. It's really interesting, especially knowing his father and the stories there. And I think it was something along the lines of wanting his son to see story construction and be brought into the story the way that his father thought that Francis Ford Coppola did. He didn't want his son to be influenced by any other thing other than what he thought was movie perfection. And I don't think that as Orthodox or Evangelical Christians, we might necessarily 
put that up there as the must-see for your kid's Sunday school group. And yet that was the answer. So we're going to ask the same question of you, and then we're going to get off of this tangent, and we're going to get right back in your story. But what was the first movie that you saw when you were 14 that helped inspire you towards this career you're on now? No, thank you. Firstly, I think that's an amazing story about Dallas, just to go from zero to the Godfather. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a shock. Mine was not quite so drastic. And the reason I didn't see movies, we grew up very far from any electricity, water, on a beautiful farm. And so we just grew up outdoors and we had no TV in the house or anything like that. But anyway. By the way, that sounds really nice. It was amazing. But to answer your question, the first movie I watched was the animated feature film, The Jungle Book, the original 2D which was just the most amazing, obviously most beautiful, amazing story, full of life and energy, yeah. So not quite the godfather. <laughs> but it inspired you. So that's very interesting. So that inspired you and, you know, you go a couple of decades on and then you produced The Jungle Beat. And so is it fair to say that watching The Jungle Book early had some level of inspiration for your career? Yeah, I'd never actually drawn a line back until you mentioned it to the title Jungle Jungle. But I think animation caught my imagination watching Jungle Book because it was just so beautiful, so vibrant, so accessible. I think that's what caught my imagination was the animation aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Okay, so you grew up on a farm, and I'm imagining this idyllic childhood growing up. Talk to us a little bit more about that. Talk to us about what it was like growing up on a farm in Zimbabwe. Tell us about your family and who you are and how you developed the faith, and just bring us up until when you really started leaning into your vocation, please. No, I think just looking back, you don't realize it at the time, Henry, but I had the most incredible upbringing. My parents were incredible people. We grew up in the wild and in the outdoors, and I can remember particularly my mom saying, when we're getting into our teenage years, she was saying, Phil, and to my brothers and sister as well, you know, when David was your age, he was killing giants. And when Joseph was your age, he was doing this. And so you guys, come on, you've got to get out there as teenagers. She was really trying to inspire us as teenagers to dream big, to live big. But obviously Jesus was at the center. And then for me, just growing up in the wild, I really personally connected with God. It was like, particularly one time, canoeing down the Zambezi River, which is a beautiful river in Zimbabwe. And I used to spend weeks there. I loved it. <laughs> and just on that river, if you saw a thunderstorm or a beautiful little yellow flower or a lion charging or an elephant in the distance, I just saw the fingerprints of the artist, of God. And, and I just fell in love with God. I was like, wow. If I just look at the artistry around me, I just wanted to know that person. It's like, he's just incredible. So... For me, that's where my journey with Jesus started. And I just, I fell in love with God. And then I think I always loved storytelling, Henry. Like when I was a little kid, although I grew up in the wild, every weekend I was drawing cartoons, like graphic novels, Avenger style, all these cartoons. So I just always loved storytelling. And as I looked at it around me, I just realized that so many of my friends, their view of God was so dismal. It was like either he was this austere, angry character who was out to judge them. And I was like, that's not the God I've encountered in nature. Yeah, so that's where it started. Out in nature, I just fell in love with God. And particularly that verse that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And I was like, oh, wow. If I could connect people through story, which was my passion, uh, it would just be an amazing thing to do. And I, I don't know if you want me to carry on a little bit further into that story as to how I got into film, or was that coming up in another question? Yeah, no, no, bridges there, please. Okay, so I went to university, and our whole family studied agriculture. That's what we did. <laughs> so I went to university and studied agriculture. But while I was at university, I couldn't get away from this feeling. And I started watching movies a lot. And I was just struck by the incredible power of movies to move society, to shape thinking. And I realized that stories, and particularly told through movies are like Trojan horses. They get under people's defense mechanisms. And for good or bad, they plant a seed. You know, that can then germinate and grow. And I was just struck by the film industry. And I was like, it's incredible, the power of the film industry. And so many of my friends, I was watching from these few square kilometers in Hollywood, this incredible impact on their view of marriage, of life. And it wasn't all bad. Like, there's a lot of good in it. There was, like, inspirational movies as well, that, movies that inspired you to be courageous or be persevering. But in a lot of it, there was also a lot of bad that eroded marriage or eroded, you know, worldview on God. And I was like, wow. If I could get into the film industry, it would be an incredible way to connect with people and share you know, my passion for Jesus, basically, and God. And yeah, you know, that's where it all kind of started to take shape. And I love being an entrepreneur. And I love being a businessman. So there was no one in my family, Henry, vaguely connected to the film world. So I started my own agricultural business. 
I'll give you a quick brief summary. And that was going super well. And my wife was a very brave person. She said, Phil, you've got to follow your passion. Your passion is to tell movies and to tell stories. So I read a saying that says, an eagle that chases two rabbits, both will get away. So in my wisdom, <laughs> I shut down my agricultural business and decided to focus 100% on the movie business. And I, at first I regretted it because I just realized it's an incredibly different industry and so much about business as we know is about relationship. And so shifting lanes was incredibly hard. But that's a quick overview. And so then we started the film business and I'll stop there because I'm sure it'll come up in other questions, but that's the headline of how we got into the film business. I'll just tell you one thing. My one friend said to me, Phil, you're saying you're going to start a film business in Zimbabwe is like saying you're going to start a Ferrari factory in your backyard. <laughs> and he says, the day you make one cent out of that, I'll eat my hat. <laughs> so I was like, well, thanks for the, <laughs> thanks for the encouragement. <laughs> but, yeah. but here we go. We could do an entire podcast on the eagle chasing two rabbits, just as an entrepreneur tries to understand what to go with. So thank you for bringing that up. You're 100% right. And so you decided to chase the rabbit and you caught him. Really cool. I love the fact that you've got this agricultural background. You know, that's so near and dear to Ndidi's heart. Isn't that awesome? That's so exciting. And obviously, I'm glad the rest of your family is still involved in agriculture because we just need all the dynamic energy being channeled into that. But I'm equally excited that you embarked on this journey in the film landscape. And that comment you made about starting a film company in Zimbabwe in the most difficult times, I can't imagine. So just walk us through a few of the milestones through your entrepreneur journey in film, which is a very difficult industry, and how God played a part in those milestones. No, wonderful. Thank you. So the first movie we did was in Zimbabwe, and we were inspired by the street art in Zimbabwe. So they take bits of wire, copper, rubbish, if I can say, and they make up these beautiful characters along the street. So we decided to create a feature film. It's model animation, but we called it Junkmation. And we took all these beautiful characters and we made a film called The Legend of the Sky Kingdom. Truthfully, I knew nothing about film business. So it was my school fees, if I can say that. We won lots of awards at art festivals, but we didn't make any money commercially, <laughs> which was interesting. And part of that was the storytelling process. So we literally just wrote our first script, no storyboards, straight into production. And I actually financed it through our agricultural profits at that stage. But I learned so much about the film industry through that process. And this is where the eagle chasing two rabbits story came in because we were still in Zimbabwe and we thought, oh my goodness, if we really want to get into the film industry properly, we need to be willing to move. And I love Zimbabwe. So this was not an easy decision. Although I must say it was chaos in Zimbabwe. That's a super hyperinflation, political chaos. So it wasn't an easy business environment, but particularly from a film industry point of view, it was going to be impossible. So we moved to Cape Town. Uh, with three little kids, and we decided to set up in Cape Town. I'll just tell you one quick thing. When we left Zimbabwe, there were a few families that moved with us. We put all our personal possessions into these containers on the train, all our computer equipment, furniture. We arrived at Cape Town, opened the containers, and they were, had been robbed. It was completely empty. <laughs> there wasn't one computer left, any furniture. And I had like eight families all looking at me saying, Phil, what have we done? What have you, what have you done, you know, moving us to Cape Town? So the idea wasn't without its challenges, but it was an incredible time, actually, just moving to Cape Town and resetting up in Cape Town. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. But that was... Definitely does. And uh, the tenacity, the vision, the patience to build what you've been able to achieve over the last 30 years is truly inspirational. And I think film has the power to change narratives, to build bridges, obviously to draw people to Christ. So can you just talk us through how you have used this medium in your Christian witness as well? Yeah, definitely. And just quickly to touch in on one thing you said, Ndidi, and I'll get to that question. In terms of God's timing in our lives and how he works, there's three people's lives from the Bible which really spoke to me. So that's David, Moses, and Joseph. So Joseph had a dream. God gave him a clear dream of what he was going to do with him. And then things just went south. You know, he went, became a slave, then he ended up in jail. And that was an interesting journey to fulfill his dream. But that dream was true. And in the end, God did fulfill it. But his journey to get there was interesting. You know, Moses was given a very clear calling. And then he ends up in the desert for 40 years. And then eventually he gets to fulfill his destiny. David is anointed king. And then he runs through the wilderness for seven years. 
So the one thing I learned in our journey is, and I think what happens in that time, God gives you this dream, this vision, and then often there's this, if I can call it desert time, this time in the wilderness, which we definitely experienced, but God kindly takes you through it, although it feels tough at the time. But what I think we learned through that time is God is circumcising our hearts. That's what he was doing to Joseph, to David, to Moses. Like, yes, you've got a calling, but through that desert time and through those hard times of getting somewhere, God really takes out the pride of life and works on your heart and does something in your heart that you can't do yourself, which is bringing a, a real humility, uh, just take you on that journey. Sorry, just to take this further, because I think it's really great. What sustains you through that wilderness experience, especially when you're not making money and you're not achieving the targets in, in the industry that you've set out to achieve? Yeah. So the one thing I'll <laughs> say that honestly sustains you is not yourself and not your own. There's a verse in the Bible that says, does not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So I can honestly say it's God's mercy that sustains you because we doubt, we give up, we go backwards. But the one thing I learned from that is that the Lord is my shepherd. He is the good shepherd. So honestly, you can't take credit and say, well, I had perseverance or I had courage because the one thing I learned was despite me, God took us through that wilderness time. And actually, that's incredibly exciting because I was like, oh, wow, I can rely on the shepherd, not on myself to get me through this wilderness. <laughs> the one encouragement I'd give to anyone who's going through the wilderness is don't panic. You will fail. You will doubt. But you've got a good shepherd and he will sustain you and he will get you through it because we're all human. And, you know, we definitely need that good shepherd. We need our good shepherd to get us through it if that answers. So I learned through that wilderness even more and more how fallible I was and how amazing he was, <laughs> Yeah, which was part of the wilderness I love, experience. I love yeah. that encouragement because many of us called by God to enter new industries like you were going through this wilderness experience, but the mercy of God sustained you. And that trust that you built through that refiner's fire was probably critical as you've moved into the success realm now and you're doing amazing. So just tell us, quickly about the new work that you've been doing and how that is is uh, changing narratives, but also tackling some of these critical issues in our ecosystem. Yeah, so I think I'm gonna answer your question. So tell me if I go off track. <laughs> but the biggest movie we're working on right now is a movie on the life of David, which I'll lead towards. That became a dream 20 years ago. And I think there's a number of kinds of movies and they all carry importance. Some are allegorical and some are, like C.S. Lewis's movies or Lord of the Rings or the Narnia movies and books, those are allegorical and they're incredibly powerful. And then some in the right context can be more overt or more direct, which is like, for example, a life on the story of David. But just how we got to David quickly. So one of my passions, we were talking about it earlier, is quality. And so we started a brand. One of the properties we worked on is a brand called Jungle Beat, for example. And the main goal behind that property, it hasn't got an overtly Christian message, but the beauty of it is it's about love and friendship at its core. And that, just so you know, that brand just took off. We've now got 8 million subscribers on YouTube. We get 150 million views a month on YouTube, which is crazy. We did our first animated feature film, which we released on Netflix last year, and we're in production of the second film. But I'll say a lot of Jungle Beats, at its core, it's got love, but it was a stepping stone towards a movie like David, and it was towards David that we were building. So I think if I'm answering your question, there's so many different kinds of film and they all play different roles and have a different place in the ecosystem. So Jungle Beat for me was very much more in the allegorical space and quite likely and it was more entertainment and fun, but it was building skill, building, oh, you know when David went to fight Goliath, how he said, I fought the lion and the bear so I can take on the giant. So I think for me, Jungle Beat, that experience of Jungle Beat was like fighting a lion or a bear, building skill, building team, building pipeline to prepare us to take on a massive project like David, which we're right in the middle of now. But just to say, I think there's a variety of kinds of movies we can all make. Yeah. Well, I'm fascinated by this and I do think about allegory and I think about the different images and illustrations that you provided so far about the life of a faith-driven entrepreneur. And it's, and it's the eagle chasing the rabbits, but then it's the good shepherd is going through the valley of shadow and death and just this really needing to rely on God. And I can see this now in this setting of this animated feature. And yet, I think that's kind of the story of the life of David. Right. And it's just, you know, when I think about the life of an entrepreneur, a business owner, and I think about this man or a woman who has a heart after God's, 
And then I see it kind of in your life. I mean, you may or may not be comfortable with this comparison, but your story of coming out of Zimbabwe, going down to Cape Town, having things stolen and kind of taking on, if you will. I mean, it's not like you decided to compete against the big studios in L.A., etc., but it feels like a David and Goliath story. As you think, as you have been producing and working on this film of David, do you see echoes of that in your own entrepreneurial walk? Or is there another movie that is yet to be told about the entrepreneur story? But so much of it strikes me as being, you know, when you look back on his life as seeing elements of that in my life, crying out to God and all that, just riff on that a little bit. Do you see yourself in the life of David as you're telling the life of David? In so many ways, really, Henry, it's amazing the number of parallels we see in the movie we're making and what the journey we're on. And I'll give you a few examples. There's a beautiful verse which says, God chose the weak and foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And let's start with David. When the anointing happened, he was not even called. <laughs> so there's these seven brothers who are bigger and stronger and more intelligent. And, you know, the prophet has to say, well, have you got any more sons? Because it's none of these. And then, oh, yeah, there's David. He's in the field, you know. So the first thing I'll say about a David story, it doesn't start with somebody who's obviously gifted or talented. It's like God has got a plan. And going back to that, it's God who's the hero of the story, not David. And in our story, not us. God must be the hero of the story, you know. So that's one thing. Is like I feel, and I want to talk a bit about Africa later and why Africa, but just to rip into that a little bit, I think the reason God decided to make a movie on David with a studio in Africa was because it was seen as the least of the least. In terms of the film industry, we are seen as the least, you know, but I think that's why God chose this very reason to work here. And then on the journey, yeah, I see so many parallels as we go. I'll give you one example, and we're halfway through the movie, Henry and Indeed, and when we're one stage through it, when David entered the Valley of Eli, I read a beautiful thing of Eugene Peterson's. He said, David entered the Valley of Eli, he had a God-dominated imagination. And everyone else had a Goliath-dominated imagination. But what happened as David went to fight, with the best will in the world, the pros around him try to put on Saul's armor. Like, he has a breastplate, he has a sword. And as we set out on the journey, we had a lot of professionals who came in and said, Phil, we think you need this and you need that. And it was all well-intentioned. But I could feel, in fact, I really felt God speaking to me about Saul's armor and saying, Phil, you need to be authentic. I've given you a calling. You need to go with what's authentic to you and with what I've given you. So take off all this armor, which is hard to do <laughs> when people who are pros are putting it on you, and take it all off and go and fight with what I gave you and with what I showed you in the Zambezi River and in the bush in Africa. Take that beauty and that wildness and put it on screen. You know, don't be tamed. So again, I saw an allegory there with David's story and our story. And we had to put aside a lot of advice and actually go back to what we knew well from telling the Jungle Beat story and the way we did it. Because the danger with Hollywood, and there's a lot of brilliance that comes out of Hollywood, but the potential dangers that can be very derivative and very, yeah, just it's very derivative and lacks spirit and heart often. And so I feel like that's where our story paralleled next to David's. It's like, go and fight this with a slingshot. I chose you because you've got a slingshot, because you're the least. And take that and, and fight the giants, you know. So I don't know if that's answering your question. Well, it does. I mean, you're talking about, indeed, the life of David does mirror your own. And without calling yourself David, but you see this element of it. And I think that that's really interesting. I want to get into the times where... You have found yourself crying out to God a bit, and it may be artificial to weave it into the financing story, but I still come back to the, you know, your original creative start into animation was funded off of profits from your agricultural background. How have you funded this? And are there times when you're like, oh my goodness, I've got this God-shaped vision about what to do, but how can I pull it off? Where am I going to find the funding from it? And do you cry out to God in that situation? Tell us about how do you finance, you know, the type of product that's seen by so many people? What did that look like? Oh, that's such a great question. I mean, the first thing I'd say on that, Henry, is for me, the first thing it needs to start with is vision. So the one thing I was super clear on is I wanted to make a movie, and I'll talk back to how that talks to finance, but I wanted to make a movie that competed with Tangled and Frozen and genuinely the Disney movies of the world. So that was clear in my mind even 20 years ago that actually was clear in my mind that's where we want to go so with that in mind there's a few things which are so much more valuable and I don't say this glibly than finance and I'll get to finance but is the first thing I realize is people so I was reading Michael Dell's biography and he's saying he always tried to employ people smarter than himself because it just pulled this curve like this 
So from 20 years ago, I decided, right, I always want to employ people better than myself, which is not always that hard, but anyway. <laughs> but try and find people who are smarter in this field and, and more talented than you and just keep that philosophy. With the money you have got, invest it in people and keep pulling that curve up. So that's one thing. The other thing about vision, I felt it's a bit like there were so many times where yeah, you, you feel lost and you feel like you're on a ship and there's deep mist and somewhere out there you know there's the shore, but you're not entirely sure where the shore is. But I'll tell you, what struck me was the feeding of the 5,000. And I love what Jesus said to them. He's like, you know, you feed them. And they were like, but how? That's going to take a year's wages. And I felt God saying, Phil, you make this movie. And I was like, but I'm sitting in the tip of Africa. I don't have this budget. How am I going to finance this, you know? And, and then I felt him saying, well, what have you got? So I was like, oh, okay, well, what have I got? And that is an incredibly powerful thing, which I'm sure many people know. And, and you certainly know you guys and Henry and, and Didi. But... Just start with what you have got, a few loaves and fishes. And then what I started to see was how Jesus multiplied that in different ways. And I won't go into detail now unless you want to get into it. But what I noticed was as we bought what we've got, not what we didn't have, we just started to see it multiply. And that's where we've seen miracles. And we still need to see more miracles, but that's part of the joy of the journey. But we've seen incredible miracles along the way by just simply bringing the loaves and fishes that we had. Yeah. And then seeing what God could do after that. I love it. It's so inspirational, Phil. And I would actually like to dig into that a bit deeper. The miracles and the multiplications with what you have in your hands. Many people don't think you can do that in Africa. They think you have to move to Hollywood to break into the global movie industry, but you've done it. So just tell us a bit more about how God multiplied what you had in your hand. Oh, thank you. So first of all, we started off with Jungle Beat as one example. Just started being faithful. They were small stories, by the way. So just started trying to tell those as excellently as we could. And the other thing I really felt was hold back, keep the gunpowder dry. Don't try to take a shortcut. So I always wanted to make a movie on David. But I'll quickly speak to that because I think what Esau did with a pot of stew, he sold his birthright for a pot of stew because he had a short-term appetite. So we had quite a few people in the who came along and offered to invest, but it was at a certain cost. So it was quite hard, to be honest, to hold the line and really not sell your birthright for a pot of stew. I think that's one journey of an entrepreneur. And we know Abraham, it was given a promise that about Isaac and he created Ishmael because he became impatient and he decided to create his own momentum. And I did make that mistake, I want to say a few times, and I learned the hard way. It's like, oh, wow, wait for God's timing. But going back to some of the miracles, so Jungle Beach just started out as a very simple thing, but grew beyond our expectation. And that started to finance and and take us on our journey as well. And then people bought into our life. The one thing I wanted to say is, I was speaking to one of my relatives who raises a lot of money for NGOs. And I was saying to him, how do you go about it? And he was saying, Phil, there's three rules. (laughs) It's relationship, relationship, relationship. So I was like, oh, okay. So as we went on our journey and built relationships, people joined in the adventure. So finance came from remarkable ways through properties we were working on, through people who got inspired by the journey and joined the journey. And one particular part of David, which is very rare, I don't think this often happens, but someone who financed our demo, we've done a David demo in 2017 that speaks to the movie. Actually, she was driving on the road and heard an audible voice that God saying, I want you to finance this demo. And she was like, what? And she thought maybe I'd put a speaker in the back of her car. <laughs> and, uh, but that was quite a radical and unusual thing that actually happened. But mostly it wasn't that radical or unusual. It was just little by little, it grew and it grew and it grew. Yeah, but I'd say one of the key things was relationship. Through relationship in particular, it multiplied. And I'm a huge believer in building relationships for the right reasons with people. And out of that comes multiplication. I love that story of the lady who thought it was a speaker in her car. Because when you're working in purpose and you're obedient to God, he sends resources and angels. And that's reflected in your life, Phil. I love it. And I want to touch on something you mentioned, which is really around excellence. Because in your industry, you know, you can rush and produce something just to get it out the door. But from your consistent commitment to excellence, it means taking a little more time, spending a little more money. How do you keep pace with that? And what is your guiding principle? Yeah. So thank you. And I'm just so passionate about excellence. There's that one verse in the Bible that says, whatever you do, do it with all your heart. And as Christians, if I look at God's character, he said, be hot or cold, but don't be lukewarm. And I really think it applies to the way we do things in life. It's like he is excellent as a creator. And I feel so inspired to be excellent just because I can see his excellence and what he does, you know. And so not to be lukewarm, 
my one brother's got a saying, don't be naff about it. Just be wholehearted, like whatever you're going to do. But along that journey of excellence, the one thing I really want to share, and the best way I can share is actually from a book I recently read called Atomic Habits. And he's talking about the aggregation of marginal gains. And very quickly, this is a worthwhile storytelling, I think. He talks about the British cycling team. And for 100 years, they only won one Olympic medal. Then someone took over. And between 2007 and 2017, they won 66 Olympic medals. They won the Tour de France three times. And they broke, I think, 100 records. And what the person who took it over put it down to was aggregation of marginal gains. So he spoke to the cyclists and got a surgeon to show them how to wash their hands. They didn't pick up germs. The pillows they slept with at home, they took on tour or similar ones that they slept well. On the inside of the truck, they painted it white so they could see dust so that dust didn't get into the cogs. And I think one of the things about excellence is it's not, often it's not one massive thing you do, it's the aggregation of marginal gains. And if we as Christians are really passionate about paying attention to that, I think, and it takes time to get excellence, that's the other thing. Excellence, like you were talking about perseverance, that aggregation of marginal gains, you don't see it overnight. You see it over time, but it's just paying attention to incremental things that just do things better, and then you get to excellence. One other thing I'd say about the movie industry, but it applies to anything really, is that I'd really say that good is the enemy of great, and you've got to really believe that, (laughs) because it's too easy to stop at good. But actually, if you see good as the enemy of great, you actually push past good. And I remember reading an article with Jerry Buckheimer, he's an amazing filmmaker, they asked him, what makes you such a good filmmaker? And you're saying there's two things. One, the ability to say no. And another thing I remember him saying, you walk into a movie, imagine himself moving into a movie theater, seeing up the posters of a whole lot of the film, imagining his person and saying, would I go watch my own movie, truthfully? Or would I go watch the latest James Bond or the latest Born Identity? And if you could truthfully say I'd watch my movie, then he would like, okay, I'm going to make that movie. And I think, yeah, so that pursuit of excellence is hard, but it's that aggregation of marginal gains, I think is where you can eventually get excellence. I love it. I love it. So many great nuggets. And I wanted to push on this issue of excellence in Africa because you are creating excellence from Africa. What keeps you motivated about working in Cape Town, working in South Africa and telling these amazing stories from the continent? I love it. So the one thing about, I'm going to talk specifically about the film industry, but the one thing I love, I was speaking to a friend of mine, he said, look, wherever you are in the world, you're going to be fighting a snake of some kind. So in the first world, you're fighting a python, and in Africa, you're fighting a cobra. So in Africa, you're fighting a clear and present danger. <laughs> in the first world, you wake up one day and you just feel like the life's been sucked out of you slowly and squeezed out of you. So, you know, pick your heart, choose your heart. So wherever you go, you're going to have different challenges. And I found it quite an interesting thing, though, because the thing about fighting a cobra is it keeps you awake, it keeps you on your feet, keeps you alert. <laughs> and so one thing I love about Africa, it's a continent of just deep beauty and richness, but it's also uh, of stark contrasts. And that for me, my senses are highly alerted in Africa because there's such stark contrast. When it gets to the film business, I think it's so easy to, if you're in Hollywood or in the first world to become very derivative. When you live in Africa, I think it's easier to be original and to actually flow with originality and let that creative flow be original. And then I think Africa's got such a beautiful beat and vibe and energy to it. When I'm a creative, there's so much to tap into. And I'm like, you can tap into the beauty and the heart of Africa, but what's happened actually in our industry with COVID is your ability to work with brilliant other people around the world to complement that and actually help bring out that heart more beautifully has actually just grown. I mean, it was always there, but like now we're also working with artists in Spain, in Los Angeles, in UK, but at the heart of it, it's an African studio, but we're still able to tap into some of the world brilliance as well. So the big word I would use why I love Africa is because I feel it's easy to be original when you come out of Africa. It's easier not to be derivative. (laughs) And I think that it can apply to whatever you do, just just think differently, to think out of the box. And that's what I love about Africa. By necessity, we've often got to think out of the box because we've got to solve problems in a different way to the first world. And I think that creates such an entrepreneurial spirit often. And I'm a huge believer that we can do things brilliantly out of Africa and yet capture that electricity that Africa gives. So yeah, I'm passionate about Africa and what it can give to the world. 
I love that. I also, maybe because we're talking about film, I'm drawn into Indiana Jones and him coming down into the shaft of the pyramid and he's got snakes all around him. <laughs> maybe you're suggesting that if we, as entrepreneurs, can kind of get into this clear and present danger, our senses are alert to opportunities and it's life or death and we're just fully alive. And maybe that's where that illustration stops. Maybe I'm not going to be surrounded by myself. I can tell you that my one snake story in South Africa is I went on a bike ride and went by a black snake. And in Maryland, where I grew up, a black snake is very tame and there's nothing wrong with it. In South Africa, it's a black mamba. And when my guide came up right next to me and his complexion had turned to white, he said, uh, next time you see a black snake, don't go anywhere near it. It made quite an impression. And there's that sharpness. And you've tapped into that from Africa without losing that kind of African centrality. And yet I want to bring it back to another nugget, if you will, because you've got some great ones here on the call to create and excellence. And these are the marks of a fate of an entrepreneur. But another thing that we look at and we talk a lot about is the concept of team. You have team all around the world. When you see the credits at the end of one of your movies, it goes on for a long time. How do you as a creative leader harnessing the talents from people across the world, but primarily in Africa, how do you cast vision and how do you invite people into something that is more than just a nine to five job, which allows them also to be excellent and lean into their call to create? Mm. Oh, that's such an amazing question. And the film industry in particular is interesting because you're dealing in the book Creativity Inc., which is about Pixar. He talks about where how creativity challenges technology and technology challenges creativity. So you've got quite different kinds of people working within the animation industry in particular. You've got a lot of creatives, which are, and creatives are always interesting to work with, and I mean that in a beautiful way. And you've got a lot of tech people who are also interesting in another way. And then you've got marketing, and so it's quite a broad spectrum of people. And I want to go back to David for a second because we learned, and I think David's life has got such incredible leadership lessons for us. And the one I want to talk about is when he was in the wilderness, said everyone who was in debt, distress, or running from the law gathered to David. So I was like, oh my goodness, what a bunch of people to get, and that's what you've got to work with, which was interesting. But out of that, he created these mighty men, and this was the start of his nucleus of an amazing group of people. So that was amazing. I just was struck by the power of leadership in that sense with David, and I'll come back to that. The other thing I was saying, going back to vision, and I'll cue back to the David thing, is I remember my mom talking to me about Hudson Taylor and his missionary society to China. And all the other missionary societies were promising, look, if you come, we'll take care of your kids' school fees, your medical aid, and we'll do this for you. And Hudson Taylor's call was, if you come with me, I promise you death, I promise you malaria, but I promise you a chance to preach the gospel. And I think that was so inspiring, and his missionary society just grew the strongest because it attracted the right kind of people. And there's a beautiful saying as you come up the stairs at our studio, which I pulled off Lord of the Rings, the little dwarf Gimli, he says, Certainty of death, small chance of success. What are we waiting for? So I think when you're casting vision, and not true for every area of life and every industry, but for this kind of thing, I think it's important, like the sieving out of Gideon's men, to make sure that the call is very clear, that you don't apologize for the risk or for the challenges or the hardships, because you are going to go on a journey together and it's going to get hard. So I think the first thing for me when you're building team is make sure that unapologetically you give the vision and the call and you outline the danger. And I love, that's what Jesus does with us as well. He doesn't say, guys, this is going to be easy and I'm going to answer all your answers. He's like, you know, take up your cross and follow me. And I feel that the call is a critical thing. And then once you've got the call, the other thing I would say is like really trying to build people, like I was saying earlier, always employing people better than yourself, not to have the humility and don't be insecure about that. Like, just employ the best people you can find and aim at that because they're just going to lift your game, lift your product. And I think that's something to pay attention to is really trying to employ people smarter than yourself and be quite intentional about that. And yeah, the other thing I wanted to say for us as leaders as we go, and like this is something for us all to strive for, one story of David's life that I love, it talks about when he was in the wilderness and he was thirsty and three of his mighty men heard him saying, oh, I wish I could get water from the well of Bethlehem. And there was a Philistine garrison around Bethlehem at that time. And I just love the story. I did a bit more research into it, that they fought their way through an entire Philistine garrison, drew him water, and brought him back water. And I was like, oh my goodness, how much they must have loved David to do that for him. Because he didn't command it, he didn't ask it. What had he done for them? He must have loved them and given to them in such an incredible way. And I was like, wow, that's like God with us. 
Like when God captures your heart, you'll go and fight your way through a Philistine army to draw him water. Not because it's a religion, but because he's got your heart. But anyway, what I want to try and emulate, and we don't always get it right, obviously, but is to give to the team around me. And I love that verse, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. So I think if we as leaders genuinely serve our team, you will win their hearts and then they'll do things for you that are beyond imagination. And I don't know if that's making sense, Henry, but I feel if we can cue into that, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. It results in that kind of winning of hearts and people doing things that go beyond the norm that can take us to greatness. Yeah. Yeah, listening to you, I'm just so inspired and challenged and encouraged. I don't think there are many people like you in your industry. How have you built a community to support you, to stay on the straight and narrow? And is there a community of believers in your industry that you've also been a part of or helped create? Yeah, it's amazing. Like It's always God pulling together. Because the interesting thing, again, I want to talk about David and Didi, because what you're saying is so right. It's about community. It's about God's body. And I love that thing. It says when he was in the wilderness, God also drew mighty people to him. So this magnetism of God himself, there's people who've joined us in Didi who are, it's literally miraculous that they would come. I'm like, why are you coming? <laughs> because you're the best of the best. Like some of the guys, one guy joined us, he'd worked at 20 years at Pixar, for example, and he came to work on the David Project. And it's like amazing, that magnetism, but it's a God magnetism. The one thing though, to speak to your community of believers though, the first thing is make sure you marry an incredible person. <laughs> so it starts there. So the one thing I'd say, my wife's got an amazing proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. This is an African proverb, by the way. If you want to go far, go together. And I think you can go fast on your own, but if you really want to go far, what you're talking about is build that community. And that's one of the beautiful things about Africa is that their understanding, I think in the West, it's often lost, you like islands, but in Africa, community is still a powerful philosophy and it's genuinely a thing. And as we built the David things, be surrounded by people from different walks of life who can speak into that project and encourage and build and challenge. And so, yeah, it's all about community and going far revolves around going together, not on your own. In other words, it's also not about Phil Cunningham and what I think. It's like actually about what God is doing. I'm serving what God is doing and so are they. And we're working together to flow with God. And, and I'd say that's the other thing is like, when you get into something that God's doing, it's amazing because I love that analogy of like God makes the waves, but we get the joy of surfing the waves. If you're a surfer, you'll understand that. So we are not generating the waves. We're just surfing the waves. But linked to that is this community that's critical. Yeah. And, and I think on that, it's like we've got what well, we learn. We don't have to. We learn it. God teaches us the hard way to listen to people around us. You know that one proverb which says basically often war fails for a lack of counsel. Build people you trust around you. We've got something really called the round table, which are really trusted leaders. We call it a round table on purpose. It's not a pyramid. I sit at the round table, my wife sits at the round table, and then there's other people who sit at that round table. And that's our leadership. And we purposely call it a round table because we're all there to talk on equal footing around that table. Yeah. There is so much there from building a team to getting community around you. I'm very, very grateful for this. As we come to a close shortly, I want to bring it back to a question that came up originally from an interview with Dallas Jenkins. And I was, and I asked this question because we have a ministry called Faith Driven Investor. That's a sister ministry. And it was birthed out of the realization that some number of entrepreneurs were coming in and they're engaging with us in our blogs and our podcasts and our groups and our conferences. And we'd offer these resources to them. And then at the end of the day, they'd say, well, we appreciate the length of the podcast, but we're still hoping to find financing for the project we're on, the company we have. And so we started Faith Driven Investor with the goal of being able to link together faith-driven entrepreneurs and then faith-driven investors. And we do it very imperfectly. Many faith-driven entrepreneurs that come to us and hope for funding aren't able to get it, but it's allowed us to kind of really get into understanding different financing models. And there have been a lot of great matches that have been made. And in the podcast we did with Dallas Jenkins talking about The Chosen, we were really taken by the way that he's been able to use crowdfunding to be able to fund so much of his projects. Can you speak to a second about the opportunity for faith-driven investors 
to be involved in projects like David, and maybe you're set up a different way, but generally, with all of us listening to this, we understand the impact of movies in our lives. For you, you talked about The Jungle Book in a way that made an impression on you. For others, it's The Godfather. For me, the movie Wall Street and Chariots of Fire coming together at the end of the 80s informed so much about where I went, and I think we're starting to get that, but maybe you can just give some context around that about what you see as the future of financing, both that's faith-driven and not, but have you looked at crowdsourcing? Maybe riff on that a little bit. Yeah, that's wonderful. And maybe I'll use the David Project because it's quite a good case study because it's a bit of a blend of private funding and crowdfunding, which is a bit different to The Chosen. So very quickly, so I'll use it as a case study. Typically, animated feature films cost 150 to $200 million to make, just to give you a context. Wow. Okay, so... Our budget is $55 million. To date, we've raised $25 million and we're aiming to raise another 30 so we've still got a long way to go. The beginning of that financing came through a series of miracles, which I'll share with Ndidi about, like that first miracle. And so the first part came through that. As we progressed, what interested me about The Chosen and crowdfunding was crowdfunding is not just about financing a project, but it's about building a community around that project, which is even more powerful than the finance, although the finance is obviously critical to do something. But what started to interest me about crowdfunding was how incredibly powerful it is beyond just bringing in money into a project. You've now got these super fans, or like you've got this crowd who are really going to help you promote. Even if it's not a movie, if it's something else, they're going to be on the journey with you. And it goes back to that thing, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And so crowdfunding started to really interest me. We met the guys from Angel Studios who helped The Chosen get funded. And we did our first crowdfund at the end of last year, which was really, we raised $5 million in 30 days, which was incredibly successful. Now we're going to try and do another $30 million, but we're doing that in maybe August, September this year. But in the meantime, because 30 is such a big amount, we're reaching out to private investors at the same time. And there's room for private investors to invest in before we start our next round of crowdfunding. So we're kind of going private investing, crowd investing, now we've got a period where we can speak to private investors and then we go back to crowd investing again. And why I think the blend is quite nice, because our budget is so big, I think if we just try to do crowd, we might not get to the budget. But if we just did private, we wouldn't have the privilege of having a massive community around the project. And what's happened with The Chosen, Henry, is just incredible to see how powerful that community is in terms of making that product successful later on as well. So I really want to build our crowd with the Christian community, with the Jewish community, and I think one thing I'd say about crowdfunding, everything's unique. The Angel Studio guys in our industry are very good at what they do in terms of crowdfunding in the film industry. Obviously, each industry perhaps has got its own experts. It's new, Henry, but I'm becoming a huge fan of crowdfunding. I think it's such a powerful way to move forward and to keep... The other thing which is really important, if I went to Netflix or I got the money from a studio, we'd very quickly become the tail, not the head, creatively. And I think the power of a crowd is that, and this can apply to other industries besides the film, but for me it's particularly important because if you look at a movie like Noah that was made by the Hollywood system, I feel it just drifted so far from the Bible because it was funded by studios. So if I wanted to keep creative integrity on the David movie, and often financing means you give up creative control, and I think crowdfunding means you can continue with creative control, you're still responsible, but yeah, I'm waffling a little bit, but I think you get what I'm trying to say. I love it. Yeah. I mean, Phil, you've just been so inspiring. And I know that the David movie is going to be so successful. It's going to touch the hearts and minds of people all over the world. And we're just so excited and proud of what you're doing. We're coming along with you. I know Henry and I have been convinced. We're coming along with you. Uh, we're going for, And we always like to close out each episode by asking our guests what they're hearing from God and what God is teaching them right now. So what have you found in God's word that has stuck out to you recently that you'd like to share with us? Thanks, Cindy. That's the best question. So there's two verses I'd like to talk about. The one is from John 6, which is the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. And one thing I've learned in Didi is like, don't put trust in myself. My own effort and my own desire are quite fickle. <laughs> so I'm putting my hope in Jesus and in his ability to watch over me, just to say that again. And I love that verse, Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. Whatever we're facing, whatever problem, whatever challenge, the answer is the same. Go back to Jesus. And on my journey, thanks for talking about the inspiration, but what I really want to say to everyone is like, honestly, it's Jesus the whole way. And, you know, as you learn that, that's the biggest thing for me at the moment. It's becoming clearer and clearer every day. 
that I can rely on my good shepherd. He's got a blueprint, he's got a map, and he's good and he's kind. So he's strong and he's kind, and my faith is in him. So the work of God is this, it's quite simple. It's to believe in the one he sent. And that's actually our work, which is great. <laughs> it is fantastic. You've blessed this, Phil. Thank you very much. I hope that you'll stay in touch as the crowdfunding opportunity comes back. I think that ours is an audience that will want to know about that and will absolutely want to be watching the movie and then sharing it with others, completely get the power of a decentralized movement. And I love the double benefit of, number one, diversifying your funding base, giving you the opportunity to being able to be more creative and having that integrity of the story. And then just the distribution that comes from that, because this is a story that needs to be told. And it's a story that's going to resonate with so many different audiences. It's going to resonate with people at different faiths on one hand, right? And yet the story of David, as you really look into it, as he cries out to his Lord, talks about the love of God, that's a God that can be found. And we find him most especially through his son. And so I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm grateful that you brought it back to scripture there at the end. And uh, Heavenly Father, we lift up Phil right now in the David Project, and we ask that you bless it, that you give him great favor, you bring people in to be able to resource all that he has set out to do, that he will be a great recipient of your protection. And dear Lord, may this film be a major hit. And dear Lord, in podcasts that are recorded 30 years from now, may people go back and say, you know, when I watched the David movie, it changed the trajectory of my life. And may that be the case. And we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve the community and see listeners tune in from over 100 countries. Entrepreneurship is often a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. The best way to stay connected is to join a foundation group with other faith-driven entrepreneurs like yourself. There's no cost, no catch, in person or online. You can meet an hour a week with your peers from your backyard across the continent or on the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at africa.faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. All this is made possible with the special help of all our friends. Thanks to the volunteers leading entrepreneur groups and watch parties to spark this movement in your city and country. We are grateful for you and hope you'll continue to share this with friends.